last minute, besides the title slide, of course. Um, so we're going to do it the old-fashioned way tonight of opening up your Bibles and following along with me through the text. Um, and in Psalm 73 is where we're going to spend the majority of our time. Now, Psalm 73, at the moment, is my favorite psalm. And the reason I say at the moment is because what I've found is that if you take any psalm and you spend any significant amount of time with that psalm, in some way, you are going to relate to it, and it'll become your favorite psalm. And that's what I found in, you know, preparing for this sermon. So the psalms are just so beautiful, you know, just a little bit of background. They they're, they're just always display the honest, raw emotion of the psalmist. And we see them at their best, and we all certainly see them at their worst. We see the struggles that they have. We see the questions that they are faced with, the way that they view God and the way that they praise Him, and even sometimes the way that they question Him. And so all of those things are things, as Christians, that we need to be thinking about. And so the Psalms, spending time in the Psalms, helps us to be aware of those, and it's always a blessing to do that. And so one thing I love is that, you know, week by week, as a congregation in our congregational reading, we go through two psalms a week. So if you don't already do that, I would encourage you to follow along with those and just be amazed at how, how the psalms can help you. So before we get started into Psalm 73, I want to start by asking you a few questions. Have you ever looked around in the world and wondered why it is that wicked people often seem to go unpunished? Have you ever thought that despite how hard you try to do the right thing, that it often seems to go unnoticed? Have you ever heard someone ask, or maybe you've asked, why would a good God allow suffering? Why would a just God allow the wicked to go unpunished or allow them to prosper? Why is it that God allows these things to happen? Those, those are legitimate questions, and maybe, maybe you've even made it to the point in asking those questions that you're just wondering, why am I trying so hard? Is all of this really even worth it? If you answered yes to any of those questions, the good news is you're not alone in that. Many of us often have doubts and fears and questions about the twists and the turns that life often seems to take. And that's nothing new. In Psalm 73, we're actually going to spend a few minutes in the minds of a, in the thoughts of a man who had those same questions. He had those same exact struggles. And in Psalm 73, he came so close to actually losing his faith because of those questions. But what we're going to see is what he concluded. And he concluded that despite anything that could possibly happen to us in this life, that the Lord is good and that the Lord is our refuge, and that we can be near to him. And so out of all the themes through Psalm 73, I decided to entitle it, The Lord is Good. And it's my hope and my prayer that as we go through Psalm 73 tonight, that you will come to the same conclusion. I think really the easiest way for us to understand Psalm 73 is to just walk through it verse by verse and let the word of God speak for itself. So I've divided it into three, three parts in Psalm 73 to help us do that. So let's go ahead and read the first 14 verses to get started. Psalm 73, verses 1 through 14. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant 
When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind, therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment, their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies, they scoff and speak malice, loftily they threaten oppression, They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So starting back at the beginning, verse, in uh, chapter 73, this transition from ch- verse 1 to verse 2, I think it shows us that Psalm 73 was most likely not written in the moment or as like a present thought, but it was most likely written after the fact, looking back on his life or looking back on a certain time in his life. Because verse 1, he really starts with the conclusion of the psalm. And that is, Asaph, the writer of Psalm 73, has concluded, ultimately, that the Lord is good. And so before he continues in this journey that he's going to present us with of these questions, he wants to make sure that you understand that the Lord is good. And so that's how he starts. In verse 2, he goes on to show that there was a time in his life when he almost slipped. He almost messed up. He almost gave up. He knows that the Lord is good, but there was a time when he was just like, God i got to tell you, I almost fell when I saw how good these wicked people have it. I was even to the point where I was jealous of what they had. In verse 3, they're living the good life. And then in verse 4, they obviously don't struggle finding food or clothing because they're described as as both fat and sleek. And verse 5 is particularly interesting because Asaph is saying, you know, I know life isn't always a pleasant place for everyone. And we know that. Things happen. Accidents happen. People get sick. People die early deaths. But Asaph is saying, God, it just seems like the wicked are on another level. They're just somehow avoiding all of this, all of the torment that's in the world. It's almost like the wicked are the only people in this earth that's not suffering. And that's how Asaph felt. And the wicked people know it, too, because verse 6 Therefore, pride is their necklace. They're proud because of this. They know they're getting away with something. And they're so proud about it that they're wearing their pride as a necklace. It's like it's displayed as jewelry, right? That's what they want you to see in them. And they're so violent, it says, that they clothe themselves with it. And so all of this that Asaph is doing here in this psalm, so far as he's building up this picture for us, he's creating this imagery of the worst possible people doing the worst possible things And yet, it seems as if nothing but good is happening to them. So Asaph is just struggling with that idea. And I think we often do too. And speaking of this imagery that he's creating, in verse 7, he says, Their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. And so it's just this picture of they have so much to eat, they're so, so, seems like they're so blessed that their eyes are just bulging out of their head, and their, their hearts are just so full but, but they're really full of foolishness. 
And one thing I like to do is when I'm studying a passage is I like to go through and look at different translations because um, that can sometimes be helpful um, to, to really see what the text is saying. Um, but interestingly enough, the New, Li- New Living Translation translates verse 7 as these fat cats have everything their hearts could wish for. And I just thought that was great. These fat cats. And so there's just um, this idea of Asaph is just looking at them and it's like they, they just have everything they could desire but yet they're rebelling against God. And so he just continues this rant of the wicked people. He just, he's just going to keep going all the way to verse 14. Not only do they act wickedly and get away with it, but verse 8, they speak wickedly. It's as if the only thing that can come out of their mouth is evil. And verse 8 also says that they're speaking these things loftily or from on high, so that either implies you know, they're just arrogant about the way they're doing it, or, or maybe that's people in places of power that Asaph sees abusing, abusing their prospering, their prosperous. And so verse 9 goes on to say these same people, they, they look at the heavens and they set their mouths against the heavens. And their tongue, there's this picture of their tongue is just strutting through the earth. And so that's not, not strutting is not just like a casual walk, right? It's not trying to blend in but it's attention-seeking. These are people that are not trying to hide the evil that they're doing, the evil that they're saying. And so Asaph is just building this, continuing to build up this picture of just how unashamed they are of their wickedness. In verse 10, we see that people are aware of this, not just Asaph. People of the world see the way that the wicked are prospering, right? People in the world see that. In verse 10, they see how they're not held accountable for their actions, And what it's causing, Asaph says, is it's causing people to see no fault in the wicked people because everything seems well and good in their lives. In verse 11, the wicked have even convinced themselves, along with others, that they're not actually accountable before God because they're wondering if they haven't been punished for what they've been doing, then it'll likely never happen. And they question, does God really know? Or does he really even care for that matter? And because of that, verse 12, they're at ease. And not only are they at ease, but they're not doing anything, but they're increasing in riches. It seems like they keep doing what they want to do, and yet they're profiting without even trying to. And so, so as we see this, it's no wonder that Asaph is struggling. No wonder he feels perplexed. It just doesn't seem to make sense. And so we get to verse 13, and Asaph is questioning the things that he's doing. Have I been doing all of this for nothing? What's the point, God, of being holy? What do I get out of it? Well, verse 13, so far, he's gotten strife, rebuke, punishment, pain. That's what he's gotten out of it. At least that's what it seems like to him, and maybe to us at times. But beginning in verse 15, we're going to see a shift in the way that Asaph is thinking. So verses 15 through 17. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. 
So in verse 15, Asaph realizes that there is something wrong in his logic. There's something wrong with the way he's thinking. He knows that. He's just struggling to understand what. And verse 15 makes us think that these are, these are very private thoughts that have been going through his head. These are not things that he was publicly declaring, these questions about God. Because he says in verse 15, if he would have said these thoughts out loud, he would have betrayed the generation of God's children. The NLT says he would have been a traitor to God's people. So what changed? What changed to make him think that way? What was wrong with this way he was viewing the wicked people? Certainly he didn't just make it all up in his head, right? Because we see some of these same things still happening today. Wicked people get away with wicked things, while at times God's people seem to be suffering. Well, the answer is really in verse 16 and 17. Asaph admits it's a difficult thing to understand. He knows he's missing something, but he just can't quite wrap his mind around it until verse 17, until he goes into the sanctuary of God. It's the idea of him coming in the presence of God to worship God. Then he understood, or as the verse 17 says, then he discerned their end. And so what exactly happened? It's just a couple verses right there, but what, what, what causes this drastic change in his thinking? Do you think he went to worship God and somehow got a miraculous vision about what was going to happen to the wicked, and now he's like, okay, God, I get it now? Probably not. Probably not what happened. But this also wasn't just some casual stroll through the temple. He wasn't just checking off his, his worship attendance box. What's more likely is, is he went to worship God, and he was reminded of his power. He was reminded of his authority over all things. And when compared to the awesomeness of God, how weak and how small the wicked seem. And I'm sure while he was there worshiping God, I'm sure he was reminded and read about the promises that God had made to his people. And that's part of the reason why we come to worship together, to remember those things. And so that's what's changing his perspective. He's no longer thinking about the world, about the wicked from his own perspective, from his own point of view with him at the center, but now he's viewing things from God's perspective, from, with God at the center. And so it needs to be for us. And one thing I like to imagine as I was reading Psalm 73 is I like to imagine that he went to worship God to meditate on his word. And maybe he came across a passage like Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, because there's so, so much of the ideas that are in the rest of Psalm 73 that we find in Deuteronomy 32, in, the, in this song of Moses. And so before we continue in Psalm 73 about the rest of the thoughts of how Asaph wraps this up, I want us to do what he did. I want us to go where he went. And as we do that, I want us to think about the verses we've read so far in Psalm 73. I want us to think about the way we ourselves are viewing wicked people in the world that are prospering. Does that make us jealous? like it did Asaph? Does that make us angry? Does it somehow cause us to feel hopeless? And I want you to think about that. And with that in mind, we're going to read Deuteronomy 32. We're going to come before God as Asaph did, and we're going to see what God has to say about wicked people so that we too can see things from God's perspective. So starting in Deuteronomy 32, we're going to start in verse 31. For their rock is not as our rock, our enemies are by themselves. 
For their vine comes from the vine of Sodom, and from the fields of Gomorrah, their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter, their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense, for the time will come when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and that there is none remaining, bond or free. Then he will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge. Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand, for I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens." Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. So we'll stop there. That's a it's a bit lengthy, but what a vivid description we're given of the terrifying wrath of God that will be poured out on his enemies. They're described as being alone and by themselves. And in contrast to that, here What a comforting description that God gives us of how he takes care of his own people. How he's a rock to his people. He's protection to his people. Now, do you remember how Psalm 73 started and Asaph's envy of the wicked? Now, imagine having just read Deuteronomy 32, like we did. And imagine being jealous of how good that wicked people seem to have it. Do you see the point? The point is that God has always had a plan for his people. God has always had a plan for the wicked. And how foolish it is for us to be jealous of the wicked when we see how good they have it. And that's exactly what Asaph had to come to realize in uh, Psalm 73 in verse 17 when he discerned their end. And by discerning their end, he realized that it's not so much about the here and now. It's not so much about what we have to go through now but it's about what happens in the end. And so it's all about that perspective change with God at the center. So with that perspective in mind, we're going to finish out the psalm here. Psalm 73, verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength or the rock of my heart. And my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. 
I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So in verse 18, he starts with this contrast of how he started the psalm in verse 2, about how in verse 2 he had almost slipped. His steps had nearly slipped, he had nearly stumbled. But verse 18, Asaph realizes that truly it is the wicked that are slipping. And one reason I had us go back to Deuteronomy 32 is because that same imagery is given there, that there is a time when the foot of the wicked shall slip. And so from God's perspective, Asaph is seen that things are not going as well for the wicked as it often may seem. And he continues this line of thought in verse 19 and 20, and he knows that the wicked, they have no chance before God. They will certainly perish. It's just a matter of time. And so then we get into verse 21 and 22, and now Asaph is really explaining the foolishness of the initial thoughts that he was, the, the initial questions he was having. And certainly, as we read this psalm, we get the impression that Asaph is being very open. He's being very honest to God about the way that he feels, about his emotions. And there is nothing wrong with emotions, but they do need to be handled in the correct way. And Asaph realizes that because he says that this all stemmed in verse 21 when he was pricked in the heart, when he was feeling emotional. And when we, sometimes when we're feeling emotional, it's really easy to have ourself at the center, to be looking at everything from our own point of view. But in verse 22, he said that was brutish and that was ignorant of him. And he realizes even how foolish he probably looked to God. That is, he compares his actions to that of a wild animal or a beast. And with God out of the picture, that's exactly what we look like. But in verse 23, Asaph says, despite, despite my struggles, despite my questions, I'm continually with the Lord because God was there to catch me. God was there to hold me up by his hand. And Asaph continues in verse 24 with this beautiful picture of God being there, holding him by the hand, guiding him through life to one day being with him. But as for the wicked, that's not something they'll ever be experiencing. So Asaph is realizing in verse 25 how, really, how good he really has it. I'm going to be honest, in this life, we may never see fame. We never may see riches. We may never be powerful. We might not even have good health. But what Asaph is saying is it doesn't matter. Because as long as we have God, verse 25, there is nothing on heaven, in heaven or on earth that we could ever find that would even come close to being as valuable as our relationship with God, with the creator of all things. And then we get to verse 26, and it's this really cool idea of God being the strength or the rock of our heart. And to me, it's as if he's saying that the beating of that blood-pumping organ in our body, that's not what defines if you're alive. Because that might give out. And if your heart gives out, we still have life in God. It's as if Asaph is saying, it doesn't matter what happens to you here. Because we're told that the best is yet to come. But not for the wicked. Verse 27, Asaph says, the wicked do not have that same hope. And in fact, they're going to perish because they have chose themselves. They've chose success in this life over being close to God. But verse 28, 
Asaph realizes how good it is to be near to God because he is good, because he is a refuge. And with God at the center, Asaph was able to turn his perspective 180 degrees and is certainly better off for it. But notice in verse 28 that he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop by just telling God about this. In verse 28, he ends, I have, made the Lord my, I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. And so I think that's interesting because in verse 15, he was just talking about how he would have betrayed God's people by, by saying these things. And so those first 14 verses, those, those were the emotional, self-centered thoughts that he realized would not have been profitable for sharing. And in fact, he could have caused someone to stumble by asking those questions. And so we need to be careful who we do ask those questions to. But quite the opposite is true with a God-centered perspective, right? The works of the Lord, our journey to finding the rock of our heart, it needs to be shared with the world. And that's what we see all through Psalm 73 here. And so that's really, that's really the story of Asaph in Psalm 73. I appreciate you uh, patiently going through that with me, and I hope, hope you were able to gain something from there as I was. Um, but I would encourage you, we kind of went through that fairly quickly. There's a lot in there. Go back through it, read through it, and see what you find for yourself. See how you relate to that psalm. But as we wrap this up tonight, I would encourage you to be mindful this week of where your focus really is. We may suffer, the wicked may prosper, and that may be our entire lives. It may seem like that. But it doesn't mean that the Lord is any less good. Let's remember that. Because we're not promised by God that life will be easy here. And in fact, we may never see any hint of any reward here for our righteousness, for our holiness. But we are promised about what is to come. And if we're going to bring our best in 2024, we need to have God at the center of our focus. And we need to have him as the rock of our heart. And so that journey begins tonight by, being baptized, by repenting and being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. So if you're in need tonight, please come forward as we stand and sing.